I'm, I'm here to introduce tonight's speaker. Um, and and, and uh, I'll, I'll do that by saying this is, this is a person who needs no introduction, which means that the introducer never has to say anything, which is one, one of my favorite parts. Um, the, the occasion for this really is the, this is uh, Campus Sustainability Day, and there's a, there are various organizations that actually do nationwide to celebrate Campus Sustainability Day. We haven't done it here at St. Olaf because we usually spend more time on Earth Day, but I think basically what is going on with this is trying to have one big day in both the fall and the spring where students get to think about this issue. So that's one thing that's going on today. And then the other thing is just talking to students and discovering that while we've been doing a lot of things here at St. Olaf, people know something about some of them. Most students are pretty sure that we have a turban, you know, and, and that sort of thing, because it's fairly large and, and you can't quite get, a, get away from it. But there are a lot of other things that are going on uh, that people don't know about. And it just seems to me that we ought to be um, teaching with that stuff because it's really interesting stuff and I think it's sort of the direction that things are going. Um, and then another thing that's going on is I, I have been working for a couple of years now on a book called The Nature of College. And so basically what I do is I study people like you. Um, you're my kind of guinea pigs and try to figure out why you act the way you do and why, why American culture the, works the way it does on, on college campuses. And um, one of the things that I've noticed in watching you is that a lot of times there's not a lot of hope um, that people are looking sort of narrowly at what's going to go on in their lives and not seeing any broader sense of hope than, than what they might see in their own lives. And so what I want to do is just talk about the nature of hope and vice versa, um, a title that's actually better than the talk um, and that actually doesn't, doesn't, doesn't refer to the whole talk. But, but to talk maybe for about 40 minutes or so and then to have some conversation about some of these kinds of issues. Um, so here goes. I'm always a little bit unsettled with technology, so it might take me a while to get warmed up here. Uh, in San County Almanac, Aldo Leopold said that one of the penalties of an ecological education is living alone in a wor world of wounds. I think that's still true. Recently, when I asked students in a class to imagine a positive future, one of them, an environmental studies major, said that I find it really hard to imagine a positive future regarding our current environmental issues. Maybe I've had too many pessimistic environmental policy classes that seem to send me the message that there is no hope because there is no cooperation. I think a lot of students, environmental studies majors in particular, get really down about the Earth's future. These days, American college culture is not generally hopeful. These students have watched too much news and too much late-night TV to be naive about their worlds. They've grown up with The Simpsons and South Park and acquired the unearned knowingness of those satirical shows. They've watched enough reality TV to wonder about the intelligence of the average human being. And, and I'm learning that more and more now. Maggie Matson, whom some of you know, is doing a, a, a research paper this semester on um, some of the uh, so-called reality shows on uh, MTV, um, the, the Hills and uh, OC. I don't even know what they all are. But every time she describes one of them, they sound more and more dreadful to me. Um, so, so that's a part of what's, what's going on. And then they've grown up with each other. And I think that college culture teaches, teaches each other that uh, bitching and cynicism are signs of maturity. The truth is that things are in bad shape and we need to be clear about the state of the world. But the truth is that if that's the only truth we tell our students, it will get worse. We also need to tell the truth about people who have changed the world, about traditions of care and collaboration, about institutions with resources to conserve our resources, about real people engaged in the work of creating a culture of permanence on this planet. 
Fortunately, at St. Olaf, we have plenty of people who have drawn on traditions of care and collaboration to change the world right here on campus. We have our own local histories of hope. So today I'd like to modify, modify Aldo Leopold, as Leo, Leopold himself always did, to suggest that one of the benefits of an ecological education can be living together in a world of wonders. I'd like to begin with my favorite paragraph of the last five years, and those of you who have ever heard me speak at St. Olaf have heard this paragraph, and so here it goes again. Uh, in a beautiful essay called Doing Good Work Together, William Kittredge writes that we live in stories, what we are is stories. We do things because of what is called character, and our character is formed by the stories we learn to live in. Late in the night, we listen to our own breathing in the dark and rework our stories. We do it again the next morning and all day long before the looking glass of ourselves, reinventing reasons for our lives. Other than such storytelling, there is no reason to things. So I'd like to tell some stories tonight. I'd like to tell some stories about character and I'd like to tell some stories about people who are characters. I'd like to talk about the stories that we all live in and some stories we could live in. I'd like to talk about reinventing reasons for our lives and I'd like to talk about hope. In many American children's stories and other stories too, the characters live happily ever after. Sustainability is ba basically the art of ever after. The art of assuring that people in the future will have what they need to lead fulfilling lives. Hope comes from the same root as the word hop and means leaping up in expectation. If we're hopeful, our bodies are popping up because of something in prospect. So what are we expecting if we're hopeful? What do we imagine in our future? Too often, I think, we imagine a future that's basically more of the same with minor modifications, mostly technological. We imagine a life that's a high-tech version of today's life with better cars and bigger TVs, faster computers and smarter cell phones, more genetic manipulation and fewer diseases. In education, when we say we're preparing students for the future, this is often what we mean. To some extent, sadly, it's the case that American higher education has lowered its horizons from preparing students to create a better world to preparing students to succeed in the troubled world we have now. I'd like to suggest that college can be different, that higher education can have higher expectations, and that these expectations necessarily involve ecology, sustainability, and hope. The 21st century is the age of ecological transition. It's the time in which people will learn to live with nature or face the consequences. It's the time for the next industrial revolution, a revolution in which technical know-how will be supplemented by cultural know-why. This revolution will entail changes in science and technology, agriculture and manufacturing, but it will also entail changes in culture. And in this country, the primary institution that will prepare people for these cultural changes is the American College and University. Institutions of higher education have always prepared students to live well in the wider world. Our colleges and universities now need to teach students how to live responsibly on the planet as well. Now, when we think about the nature of college, and if I were to say, say that title to, to anybody on the street or any college student, the nature of college, we don't usually think about nature. We, be, we usually think translated as something like the character of college or the culture of college or something like that. But our publicity departments feature the nature of our campuses in view books and on web pages. Most colleges are landscaped, so we can get here. Most colleges are landscaped to offer a natural look, although it's often more suburban than wild. 
We have lawns that suggest that we appreciate greenery, but that we have it all under control. We have trees, both for shade and because trees have romantic associations of calm reflection in touch with nature and with God. We have flower gardens because they add a touch of color in season. If possible, we have a water feature, a pond, a lake, a stream, a fountain, because water also naturalizes an artificial landscape, even artificially. We don't generally think of college as an ecological niche, but it is. Environmentally speaking, a college campus is a machine for converting natural energy to human thoughtfulness. That's what goes on all the time, every day. It's a place where people employ natural resources to refine and transmit the intellectual and artistic resources we call culture. Like all other colleges and universities, St. Olaf is an organic machine where nature's energy is shaped by nature's human energy and vice versa. We think of a campus as a place, a location, a space. We say, I'm, we're going to St. Olaf, and it is. But more importantly, it's a relationship where human designs intersect with nature's design, it designs in food and water, heat and electricity, cars and computers, lawns and gardens and natural lands. A campus is one way of making love to nature or of making war on nature. It's a way of caring for God's creation. A campus is, like it or not, an ecological design. It's also a classroom. A campus is how we educate each other when we don't think we're involved in the process of education. You're in my class and you walk out on the campus and you're in a different classroom, but you don't think that you're in a classroom anymore because there's not a professor there anymore. Uh, we teach our students environmental studies in the classes and labs, but we also teach them in the cafeteria and the residence halls, in the bathrooms and the bookstore, in the com computer labs and the power plant, on the roads and in the parking lots, on the lawns and on the natural lands. By its daily functioning, a college teaches students the common sense of their culture. But co co colleges can also teach students the uncommon sense of their culture. Colleges are rooted in nature, and if they succeed, they help to root their graduates in nature as well. That's not commonly what we've been thinking we've been doing as colleges, but I think that's what we need to do for the 20th century, the 21st century, that people need to be thinking about how to root our students in nature, sort of like plant them so that they develop roots or something like that. Sort of like, I guess, you know, students talk about vegging out. Maybe that should be our goal, is to get students to really veg out, to sort of become a part of the, the landscape. Uh, a college that wants to remain relevant to its students will teach all of them how to be leaders in the ecological transition of this century, because frankly, it will take all of them to do that. As David Orr says, ecological design requires the ability to comprehend patterns that connect, which means getting beyond the boxes we call disciplines to see things in their ecological context. It requires, in other words, a liberal education. A liberal education, says David, teaches students to shape what he calls designing minds, minds that are prepared by design to design a good society in harmony with nature. Seems to me we ought to be doing that in all of our classes, sort of asking, what is this class going to help you to, how is this class going to help you to design the world you want to live in? Or suggests that higher education should be designed, one, to equip young people with a basic understanding of systems and to develop habits of mind that seek out patterns that connect human and natural systems. Two, to teach young people the analytical skills necessary for thinking accurately about cause and effect. Three, to give students the practical competence necessary to solve local problems. And four, to teach young people the habit of rolling up their sleeves and getting down to work. 
And David has done this at Oberlin College in some really magnificent ways. And just to, for, as you, you should all whip out your calendars now, he'll be here on January 15th uh, to do the keynote address for our Focus the Nation stuff, which is going to be the, the following day. Education is always about hope, because the whole idea of education is that improvement is possible. Often, however, our hopes are too limited. We hope for courses with professors who aren't completely boring. We hope to pass all our classes and get a degree. We hope for a decent GPA that will get us into law school or medical school or that will get us an interview with a decent company. We hope for a social life that will keep us entertained. We hope to get a good job and lead the good life. We don't generally hope to change the world, but in fact, we already changed it by not hoping that. At St. Olaf, though, some of us are hoping to change the world, and to a very, very small degree, we've been successful. Let me tell you some stories. For 20 years, biology professor Jean Bacco has been working to establish and preserve natural lands at St. Olaf. In 1989, he and some colleagues in biology, including Kathy Shea, started a prairie restoration project on a couple of acres of land enrolled in the conservation reserve program, sowing all of the seeds by hand. Just 20 years later, the natural lands include 45 acres of original woodland, 80 acres of restored woodland, 145 acres of restored native prairie. See, I'm now behind here on this. There we go. Uh, 14 restored wetlands and a bluebird trail with 60 nest boxes. It's really an imp impressive feat over the course of 20 years. And in that time, St. Olaf students have planted more than 50,000 trees. Uh, for the past 15 years, our director of facilities, Pete Sandberg, has led the campus through a framework planning process and started projects to keep all of our stormwater on campus. Grounds manager Jim Fisher has helped Pete to reduce the acreage of lawns we mow and shifted from chemical fertilizers to a fertilizer made of locally produced turkey shit, which is called Sustain. And Jim, I, I wish I had the picture of Jim Fisher here that I have, but I couldn't find it today. Jim Fisher is just a remarkable guy. And this happens to me all the time at, at St. Olaf. I, I end up reading articles on various things that are new and wonderful and things like that. And I, I'm reading an article about, uh, uh, there's a place in Illinois, one of the arboretums, in Illinois, Morton Arboretum in Illinois has found that they've got a new elm tree that's resistant to Dutch elm disease. And so since Jim is the grounds manager, I go to him and I say, you know, there's this brand new elm tree out that's resistant to Dutch elm disease. It would be nice if we had some elms back on our campus. And he says, oh, I already know that. We, we ordered two of them last week. <laughs> or, or another time, there's this furniture maker in the Twin Cities named Baltics Furniture, and they make stuff out of uh, crop residues. And I saw an article on Baltics Furniture, and so I call up Pete Sandberg and I say, have you ever heard about this Baltics Furniture thing? It's really kind of cool. He says, yeah, that's where we got all the furniture that's down in Tostrud. I mean, these, these, the, 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 the faculty around here is pretty smart, but the staff around here is just really, really amazing. Some of the faculty are amazing, too. Um, Pete also established a construction protocol that has moved us increasingly in the direction of green building. And that construction protocol is one that's oh, probably five years old now. You can find it on the web if you search for it. He's also one of the few people in the country who isn't an architect but is certified by the U.S. Green Building Council as a lead consultant. So it's Pete more than anybody else who's responsible for the green features of this building. These include, among other things, a tight, well-insulated building with lots of natural light, interface recyclable carpet tiles in well-traveled areas, fast-growing Minnesota poplar for much of the wood trim, and last but not least, just around the corner out there, an elevator that's designed to be slow 
so that people will mock up the stairs on their own. <laughs> the only, as far as I can tell, the only people that, that use the elevator are the old people that are going up to the third floor to have lunch and the football team. This, this building, interestingly enough, also had an effect on the builder, St. Olaf Grad and Regent Tom Bolt, who now offers ecological design alternatives like this to all of his clients and whose firm constructed one of the first LEED certified buildings in Wisconsin. It's also Pete who's responsible, whoops, these are some of the features of Bontrock, I forgot to push the thing here. The other thing that's interesting is these floors that are out here are, are um, they could just be washed with soap and water, you don't need any chemicals at all to wash them. So back to this. It's also Pete who's responsible for the application to the state's renewable development fund for the wind turbine that went up in 2006. It generates about a third of the electricity we use. Christian, that's your picture. Uh, about a third of the electricity that we use, which means that the college will surpass the goals of the Kyoto Accords to reduce carbon emissions by 20%. It will pay for itself in four to five years and save the college about a quarter of a million dollars every year after that. This isn't a photo of the new turbine but it shows that wind power is not exactly a new idea around St. Olaf. This is from about 1904, I think. In some significant ways, the future won't be just new and improved, but old and traditional. And I think that's one of the things that a liberal arts college is, is uh, well equipped to do, is to help students sort out what, what was there 100 years ago that would be useful for us to know, uh, both in terms of technologies like that, which that one probably wouldn't generate as much power as our wind turbine. And in fact, it wasn't generating any power. All it was doing was drawing water up. Um, from the ground, but also in terms of cultural patterns. Apparently, as far as we can tell, St. Olaf students of about 100 years ago were pretty happy here, and they lived with a lot less stuff than you guys do. So maybe we need to think about what was it that constituted that happiness and see what we could do to sort of improve the happiness around here in that way. In 2003, St. Olaf's regents established economic and ecological sustainability as a goal in the new college strategic plan, sort of by accident. Um, um, it was, it was this more sort of lovely story involved with this. Uh, Chris Tomford had asked uh, everybody to submit stuff that they wanted to be in the strategic plan, and I was on the President's Council at that time, and he got a, more than 100 suggestions, but he really only wanted three so that we could really focus on something. And uh, as he got down to the three, and he had, was trying to combine the hundred and some things to get them into three in one way, and had sort of written it, but presidents don't have that much time, and so the writing was not very good. And I write a lot of stuff for the college, and so I just said I, I would be willing to to um, edit this for you. And so I took it and started looking at it. And the third point was they had this whole big thing on economic sustainability because colleges like this are, uh, the business model for colleges like this is really hard to see how we're gonna be in business 50 years from now since costs keep going up pretty fast. And so there's all this stuff on economic sustainability and I'm thinking the only time I ever think about sustainability is ecological. So I just added it. So every time it said e economic sustainability, I added economic and ecological sustainability. <laughs> And I, and I gave it back to Chris, and Chris, he caught me immediately. As I gave him the thing, he's looking it over, he says, you added something in here. I said, yeah, I did, what do you think? He said, I like it, let's go with it. And so that's, that's how we came to be doing ecological sustainability. <laughs> but anyway, the regents thought this was a, this was a good idea too, and, and Chris appointed a sustainability task force to describe the state of campus ecology and to offer some possibilities for improvement. Chaired by Pete Sandberg, it includes faculty, students, and staff, including some of you, and including representatives from admissions and communications, as well as the grounds manager, the chief engineer, the head of the custodial staff, and the college pastor. During that school year, we produced a 40-page report that discussed our environmental principles, performance, and possibilities. 
And we continue to meet on and off as a committee to kind of coordinate and communicate activities across our campus, but in no really systematic way. The task force is just the way that we do things at St. Olaf. But what I've found out since we had the task force is that our collaborations are not standard operating procedure on college campuses. I get letters every week from students and faculty at other colleges asking how we manage to finesse the opposition of our administration and facilities people. And I have to report, not sadly, that we don't have much experience at that. Indeed, almost every time we ask for something, the answer has been yes, or at least not no. Um, I still remember the first time I met President Anderson. His first question for me was, what's the next big thing? Which is a pretty damn good question if you think about it. Um, bon Appetit, a California-based food service company, supplies the food for our students, serving about 80,000 meals a week during the school year. They're committed to serving fresh food, creating menus with lots of fruits, veg vegetables, legumes, and grains, purchasing from regional food producers and artisans, purchasing produce that is locally grown, seasonal, and minimally processed, purchasing seafood that preserves healthy fish supplies, and offering fair trade shade-grown and organic coffees. And that's their corporate policy. They do that all across the nation. Recently, working with Environmental Defense, the company announced a policy of using its purchasing power to buy only chicken raised without the routine use of medically important antibiotics and to prefer meat, dairy, and seafood that have been raised with reduced amounts of antibiotics. And that's one of the reasons why in a regular supermarket now you see these all-natural chicken and things like that, because groups like, uh, companies like Bon Appetit leverage their purchasing power to make it obvious to anybody else who's doing chicken that you can make money doing it without antibiotics. Uh, and they also ended purchases of fish farm salmon, restricting purchases to wild line-caught salmon, which is why you don't get salmon as often as students did four years ago in the cafeteria because line, wild line-caught salmon is expensive. Bon Appetit's environmental ethic is also present at the local level. At St. Olaf, we buy apples and corn in season and we procure all of the cafeteria's pasta from a North Dakota farmer's cooperative. We purchase pork from a local farmer's cooperative and we purchased some grass-fed beef locally as well from Thousand Hills Cattle Company of Cadden Falls, a firm established by a 1993 St. Olaf graduate who majored in speech theater, um, which gives you an idea of where a liberal education can get you. You're a speech theater major and you end up being one of the world's experts in grass-fed beef. In the spring of 2005, we began to get our milk hormone-free and antibiotic-free from a dairy called Deja Mu, which any of you who know me and all the different puns that I love. I just wanted to have our business with that dairy forever because Deja Mu was such a good name for it. But it didn't work out. We, were, we actually leveraged our purchasing power because you guys drink about $300,000 worth of milk a year. We leveraged our purchasing power to try to keep them in business, but they couldn't quite make it. So now we've transferred our business to the Hastings Dairy that still gives us uh, hormone-free and antibiotic-free milk. Fortunately, too, we have a St. Olaf parent in Alaska who catches wild salmon for us and sends it frozen to campus so that when you do get salmon, it's coming from a St. Olaf parent who's a fisherman in Alaska. All in all, our goal is to teach students that a fork and knife and spoon are agricultural implements and that, as Wendell Berry says, how we eat determines how the world is used. Three years ago, students are, whoops, there's supposed to be a picture there, but that's not, there is a picture, but that's not the one I'm talking about. Three years ago, students in our environmental coalition weighed garbage for a week and found that we produce 700 pounds of food waste a day, which isn't bad when you're serving about 7,000 meals. But their work allowed Pete to buy a composter, which converts all our food waste, including meat and dairy, to mulch and fertilizer in two or three weeks. Currently, when school is in session, we compost about 1,000 pounds of materials a day. 
which means first that we keep a quarter of a million pounds of garbage out of the Rice County landfill, and second that we get about a quarter of a million pounds of fertilizer each year to feed our flower beds and agricultural lands. This was the first year, for example, that we put a lot of compost, and I mean a lot of compost, on the Stogro lands. Now to this picture. During 2003-04, Professor of Chemistry Gary Spessard and 30 students launched a new program in green chemistry, developing experiments for the organic chemistry class that introduced students to environmental issues in chemistry with hands-on examples of imaginative scientific thinking, which is to say scientific ex experiments without toxins. Um, this, this kind of thinking now shows up throughout the chemistry curriculum. In the long run, thanks to a $500,000 grant for this from the Keck Foundation, it could influence the practice of chemistry in college and university labs and in industry as well. The now I'm out of order. Um, in January 2005, we started the Black and Gold and Green website to tell some of our stories and to link to other stories of hope on college campuses across America. We have uh, information about things that are going on at St. Olaf, but we're also working on a section called A Day in the Life which describes a day in the life of a college student from an environmental perspective. We also have a section called Words, which includes essays, poetry, quotations, and a glossary. Fairly minimal state right now because I haven't had time to work on it. The website is now a year or two out of date, uh, but our goal in the long run is to create a space on the web where, as one of my students says, imagination can happen. The Adirondack shares that are all over campus are not just great shares. They're a form of recycling. When we replaced the old bleachers in Skogland, we saved the lumber from the old bleachers and college carpenter Greg Menning fashioned them into chairs that both sustain and symbolize the social capital that's such an important part of St. Olaf. When we remodeled the chapel last year, we insulated the roof with a biofoam sugar-based product that raises the R value of the ceiling from one, which is basically nothing, I mean, hot air just went out the top of the chapel like, like it was going out of business before. Uh, from 1 to 24. As usual, usual, we are using quarry tiles on the roof, and you can see them being put on today, because they last almost forever and because they have the lowest long-term life cycle costs. When we put new wood on the ceiling inside the chapel, we use Minnesota poplar, both because it's local and thus reduces the fossil fuels needed to transport it, but also because it grows so fast it's almost sustainable. The platform in the chapel has a parquet floor made up of thousands of pieces of birchwood, about that big, that we got not by cutting down trees, but by raising up sunken trees from Lake Superior. Take a good look the next time you're in the chapel. As you may have guessed, the science complex is, in fact, our next big thing. From the beginning, there's been a green team of faculty and staff planning sustainable features of the building. The Kresge Foundation gave us a grant to hire consultants to advise us on elements of ecological design. And despite all the rain this year, the project is still ahead of schedule. And somehow now this has gone into automatic modes. So, ah. We've gone beyond my capacity to do anything here, I think. The building will be certified by the U.S. Green Building Council, which offers guidelines for making sustainable choices in building. Such certification systems are, will be an important part of the whole ecological transition for the 21st century, offering guidelines for building design and all sorts of things, including organic food, sustainable forestry, and fair trade goods. The U.S. Green Building Council's LEAD guidelines, LEAD means Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, cover the whole process from start to finish 
including siting, water efficiency, energy and atmosphere, materials and resources, indoor environmental quality, and innovation and design practices. There's a scoring system, and buildings are then certified as silver, gold, or platinum, with platinum being the highest. With the science complex, St. Olaf aimed for a gold rating, in part because lab buildings, with their toxic materials and immense ventilation requirements, are really difficult to get to platinum. It would take me longer than I have for this whole talk tonight to tell you about all the innovations in the building, but let me suggest a few. In the first place, the guidelines require careful siting and recycling of old buildings. When we cut down the trees on the site, we replace many of them immediately, or we had them milled for lumber that we can use in some of the building's furnishings. Now, of course, it won't go anywhere. There we go. When we tore down Flotten Hall and Old Main Annex and the Art Barn, we were able to recycle 91% of the weight of all the materials in those buildings, which is incredible when you think about it, not counting some things like valves and steam traps and woodwork that we took out for other uses. When we tore up the hillside for the building, there, uh, we also contoured it so that 100% of the water runoff from that side of campus will be captured in a series of ponds on our land so that the water can help to recharge the Jordan Aquifer instead of going into the Northfield storm sewers. In choosing construction materials, we have opted for local materials as much as possible to reduce the embedded energy that goes into them from travel. For materials that don't emit volatile organic compounds and for materials that are easy to ma maintain. Floors in the hallways, for example, will be linoleum, a covering that's 100% natural and recyclable with no off-gassing. Some of the most impressive aspects of the building, though, will be invisible. Because of our choices of insulation, windows, ventilation, and circulation efficiency, the building should be 60% 60, 60 better than the Department of Energy's code standard. During the winter, exhaust air will run through reclaim coils that help to heat incoming air. Because of our use of low-flow faucets and other innovations, we expect water consumption to be 30% less than a standard building of comparable size. As with Buntrock, there will be lots of daylight instead of lots of electric lights, and we'll be able to monitor three different kinds of electrical use in the building. We expect that there will be some great teaching in that building because we have some great science professors, but we also expect that the building itself will be a great teacher. Now, students have been an important part of St. Olaf's environmental consciousness for a long time. Um, and I think one of the, the best thing that students have done for us is you guys have forced us to have an environmental studies program. When I started here, there was no environmental studies program, and it was students coming with questions about environmental issues that got people together to do the first classes in environmental issues, sometimes really tiny classes. Um, I remember the first time we taught environmental history, uh, Gary Deason and I, who were both in the Paracollege at that time, taught it to five students. Um, in a, what was at that time called a group tutorial, and it worked pretty good in a group tutorial, so I put it into the history curriculum as a topical class the next year, and it worked pretty good as a topical class, so we put it into the regular curriculum the next year, and then it became part of an environmental studies concentration because we still didn't have a major, and then students kept showing up for more and more classes like that, and we ended up with an environmental studies major, and then students thought that this is really cool, they kept coming for environmental studies kinds of things, and we have an environmental studies faculty that, environmental studies is now a department rather than a program, which means it can do its own hiring, and John Shade is the first person that we hired like that. And so this here's where students really have a real influence on the institution. Anyway, it was a student, Dave Wedeen, shown here, if he ever shows up again, in his current vocation as a professional ecologist who planted the first seed literally and figuratively 
on our natural lands. There we go. This is an older Dave, not Dave as a student. In 1980, Dave spent a good part of his junior year contemplating his para-college senior project and finally came upon the idea of St. Olaf as a nature area. He worked with the administration to learn about college land holdings, with the PE department to expand walking and running trails, and with various conservation organizations to obtain native plants to put on small, unused land parcels on the northwest side of campus. Some of his trees and native grasses, now 26 years old, still grow, blending in with our larger restoration projects. In 1998, students in the Environmental Studies Senior Seminar researched and compiled a project on the possibilities of a green science complex. They presented it to the president in 1998, and President Tomford, who succeeded that president, said that it was influential in his decision to make the science complex an example of ecological design. In 2001, I got involved with a first-year student named Elisa Broughton. In a class on the culture of nature, I had invited Jean Bacco and Pete Sandberg for two days to tell my class about some things that were going on at St. Olaf. Elisa posted a comment expressing her excitement and noting that you could teach a whole class like that. Three years later, during the first semester of her senior year, she wrote the first syllabus for campus ecology, and she and I team taught it in the spring of her senior year. Although Elisa graduated in 2004, the environmental studies faculty liked the course, and we proposed it to the whole faculty the following year. So a student who believed in what she called practical idealism acted on her idealism and got a course in the college catalog and in the ecological consciousness of more than 100 students since then. In 2003, a student named Katie Herod got the wild idea that a college like St. Olaf might put its money where its values are by buying organic, shade-grown, fair-trade coffee. Working with Bon Appetit, she helped to bring Peace Coffee to campus so that most of us can get our caffeine fix in a socially responsible way. In the fall of 2004, a student named Dave Burtness, back from a summer working on an organic farm in Wisconsin, came to school with an idea. She thought, thought that for environmental and educational reasons, St. Olaf needed to go back to its roots. She thought we needed a farm. In fact, St. Olaf had had a farm all the way up to 1965. A farm had been a regular part of the property. The barn was where Dittman is now. Uh, so as a first semester sophomore, she proposed the idea to Jean Bacco, our curator of natural lands. Quite sensibly, Jean said no. We've had other proposals like that, he said, and none of them has come to anything. Who would work the farm in the summer, and who would be around to eat the damn produce during the summer? It was not a good idea. Any reasonable student would have turned her attention to other things. But those of you who know Day know that Day is not any reasonable student. She talked to Bon Appetit and asked them if they would be interested in buying locally grown organic produce that she would grow on land that she didn't have permission to use. They said, sure, we'll buy it all. So she went back to Jean, and Jean said yes. Then Day and Dan Borick, the other person in this slide, established the farm as a student group, Stogro, the St. Olaf Garden Research and Organic Works, and went to SGAs for support. SGA gave them $6,400. That fall, she put together a business plan and approached the Finstead Center for Entrepreneurial Studies for help with funding labor costs. She got the grant, and she got her hands dirty all next summer, but it paid off. This year, Stogro supplied more than 20,000 pounds of vegetables to campus, and the National Office of Bon Appetit, celebrating its 20th anniversary, honored Stogro as one of the five best farms in the whole country that they work with, 
And I want you to note the two people on the right-hand side of that photograph. I mean, Dave's the third person from the, from the right there, but the other two people on the right are people that you may or may not know. The one on the far right is Katie McKenna, who's the general manager of Bon Appetit, and she has pretty much the so same sort of attitude as um, President Anderson. What's the next big thing? She's always thinking of something that's something that they're thinking about now is a low-carbon diet. And the guy next to her is uh, Peter Abrahamson. And if you haven't met him, you just have to meet him before you leave this campus. He's just an amazing guy. And he's what makes Stogro work. Because basically, in, at the time that Stogro is producing all of its stuff, he configures the menu to what they've got. So early on in the week or a couple days in advance, they let him know, Peter, we're going to have eggplant out the wazoo. And so we have eggplant curry, and we have eggplant parmesan, and we have eggplant sandwiches, and we have those little eggplant torts that you can have for dessert, and you know all of those kinds of things. Because he's a creative cook, and he really believes in this kind of thing. Um, the thing that he's working on now that may alarm some of you is that he's thinking about uh, taking out all the trays from the cafeteria and just having everybody take plates instead, because he thinks you guys waste too much stuff. And you waste it because you can put so much stuff on a tray. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see the kind of juggling that will go on when, when people are trying to get three or four plates or something like that going out to the thing. But he basically says, you know, everybody could walk back and get more because it's an unlimited food service here. But people are basically too, la too lazy to walk back. And so you take extra food just in case you, you develop an appetite between, between now and then. Anyway, in, 19 in the spring of 2004, the Environmental Coalition sponsored a HOPE lecture series. The students explained the series like this. Living in the world today, we are confronted with doomsday, doomsday prophecies, terror, war, injustice, and environmental degradation. Yet even in the face of this nearly stifling quantity of bad news, many people remain hopeful. What is it that fills the lives of these individuals with hope, and how do they continually recommit to living hopefully in the world? That was the question. The HOPE lecture series featured the combined voices of distinguished faculty, students, and community members who actively and consciously choose to lead lives of hope. And what they did is they, they picked four students and then four either faculty or staff members who had worked with them on some sorts of collaborations. And those pairs presented uh, really stories of their hope um, to, the, to the audience. So Lisa and I were one of the, one of the pairs that year. Um, this year, if you see green bikes cruising the campus, it will be in large part Katie Godfrey's part, fault. Over, over <laughs> Over the last couple of years, Katie has worked tirelessly to assemble a fleet of bicycles to paint them, tune them up, and get them onto campus as an alternative to fossil fuel cars and scooters. Um, it amazes me about the scooters here on campus, that people think they need a scooter to get from one place to another on a campus as small as this. This year, two students in, envir in the Environmental Studies Seminar will be researching green roofs, and their work will end up on the green roof that will top off the science complex. Just this year, as the Board of Regents has been considering what to do with our non-core land, students in the Environmental Studies Senior Seminar researched the issue and offered a position paper both to the consultants for the project and to the board. Their work showed up in the work of the consultants very prominently, although it seems not to have influenced the current board decision. But this is okay, I think. One of the things they learned was how to fail, and failing is often the first step to success. Um, you can see that in our food program. In 1992, we researched our cafeteria program to see if we could buy more local foods. We found that most of our food traveled great distances before it reached our mouths, and that our apple juice came from West Germany, even though there are apple orchards in this county. But we discovered in 1992 the only thing that we could change was our purchase of apples. It was an absolute failure. 
but I think it set the stage for the successes that we've had with our food program in recent years. So these students, the ones I've named, are extraordinary, but they're definitely not alone. Countless other students have engaged in efforts to sustain St. Olaf both socially and ecologically, and some of you are among them. And in the process, they've offered examples both of the satisfactions of good work and the possibilities for the future. Okay, now I'm into the last part here, near the conclusion. And I want to talk about optimism and hope. In American culture, most of us learn a number of coping mechanisms to deal with the stress and strain of daily life. In campus ecology and on the St. Olaf campus, we're trying to develop hoping mechanisms in our classes and across campus that allow us to transform the system instead of simply conforming to it. We're trying to practice hope rather than just engaging in wishful thinking. And things like this are going on at almost every college in the country. Regional organizations like the Upper Midwest Association for Campus Sustainability and national organizations like the American Association for Sustainability in Higher Education are letting colleges share their stories of hope and learn how to help students learn sustainable skills for the 21st century. In January, more than 800 colleges will take part in a day-long teach-in to focus the nation on global climate change so that presidential candidates and other politicians can't avoid the issue in 2008. Still, with all of that and with all of I've told you, I'm not optimistic. We live in a consumer society that consumes us and God's creation and the values of that society are second nature to us. The operative values of American society are not attuned to environmental regeneration. Our institutions still operate according to the obsolete model of the first industrial revolution. Few people see the systematic nature of the crisis or the institutional changes need to confront it. But things seem hopeless in part because I think we have a skewed perception of hope. In American culture, we tend to equate hope and optimism. The dictionary defines hope as a wish or desire supported by some expectation of its fulfillment. And we often use it as a synonym for wish, saying, I hope we have pancakes for breakfast tomorrow, or I hope we have chicken strips tonight. But I'd like to suggest that hope is more substantive than that and that its substance is essentially spiritual. Hope is a virtue and a Christian virtue, although not exclusively a Christian virtue. In his book, Disturbing the Peace, Vaclav Havel captures this conception of hope. This is a fairly long quotation, but listen to a man who was, at the time that he began his campaign, a writer and a poet, which is not exactly the sort of person that you expect to carry off a political revolution, who took up the hopeless task of freeing his country from the expansive grip of the Cold War Soviet Union. Either we have hope within us or we don't. It's a dimension of the soul, and it's not essentially dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. Hope is not prognostication. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. Hope, in that deep and powerful sense, is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. The more unpropitious a situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. In short, I think that the deepest and most important form of hope, the only one that can keep us above water and urge us to good works, and the only true source of the breathtaking dimension of the human spirit and its efforts, is something we get, as it were, from elsewhere. 
It is also this hope, above all, which gives us the strength to live and continually try new things, even in conditions that seem as hopeless as ours do here and now. For Havel, hope is faithfulness to our convictions, a sense that the time is always right to do right. We know how the world is and how the world ought to be, and hope is the bridge between the two, whether or not we cross to the other side. So that's our challenge as people of faith, to try to live our lives in accordance with our deepest values and not just the values of our culture, to tell stories about the pleasures of service and sustainability, about the paybacks and pleasures of a gift economy, and to use our political power to create institutions that make it easier to be good, both to other people and to the planet. I'd like to conclude with a poem by Mary Oliver that seems to me to illustrate some essential assumptions that we often carry with us about environmentalism. Um, the poem's called Getting to Wald Going to Walden, and she's contemplating whether or not she should go with some friends to Walden Pond to pay homage to Thoreau, who lived there for a couple years in the 19th century and wrote some book about it. And so she's trying to, th trying to, think, of <laughs> trying to think about whether, whether, whether or not she could go. And, and here's the poem. It isn't very far as highways lie. I might be back by nightfall, having seen the rough pines and the stones and the clear water. Friends argue that I might be wiser for it. They do not hear that far-off Yankee whisper, how dull we grow from hurrying here and there. Many have gone and think me half a fool to miss a day in the cool country. Maybe, but in a book I read and cherish, going to Walden is not so easy a thing as a green visit. It is the slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. In campus ecology and on the St. Olaf campus, we've been engaged in the slow and difficult trick of living and finding it where you are. It's ecology, it's education, it's hope. It's not yet sustainable. It's not even remotely close to sustainable, but it's been sublime. And I hope it gives you hope for what you can accomplish in your lives as well. Thank you. And now I have to switch glasses. I'm sort of at that stage of life where bifocals work, but the bifocals don't work at this level. So now I actually can see you. I, I've sort of been aware that there's kind of, kind of been a hazy presence out there <laughs> the whole time, but now I can see you. I'd be happy to, to answer questions, to hear rebuttals, um, anything that you'd like to talk about. I'd be happy to watch you meditate also. You, you're, you're doing good at that. Yeah, th um, the, the question is, what's my, whoops, can you hear me if I'm not at that one? Okay, the, the question is, is, what's my impression of professors' responses to the current board uh, decisions about the non-core lands? And I think they vary a lot. Um, I, th I think a lot of professors are just too busy to be thinking about it, or at least they think that they're too busy to be thinking about it. And so there's a fairly large number, probably, probably uh, more, the, more in that group than anywhere else. People just aren't thinking about it a whole lot because they're not in environmental studies and they're not worried about it. Um, there's a group in environmental studies that thinks that it's a real tragedy that, that we've decided to sort of put the, put the lands in, a, in the market in a way that they haven't been before. 
and particularly some of the tracts of land that were, were, that were mapped out there. And I know those of you that are students know that the tract called E was really the most critical one and the, the consultants recommended that we not do what we did with it and we went ahead and did it anyway. Um, so I think there are some, some faculty who will fight that and I know that some of you students will be a part of that. Um, I know that for myself, I've, I'm ambivalent about it. I've always been a little bit weird about this because um, I have always kind of assumed, well, partly because I was the observer to the Board of Regents for a couple of years, and so I, I know the Regents pretty well, and I know that their, their job really is to keep the college going financially. And so they have, uh, I was on a board once, and um, I got a lecture about fiduciary responsibility, which means basically they have a responsibility to keep things going and to, to make sure that it keeps going. And so if it were the case that the land out there, if we sold it all immediately or put a Walmart on it, would generate more money to keep a college going, which is what our main business is, they could probably be justified in doing that. I, I don't think that's true. I think, in fact, the land actually appreciates faster than any investment that they could make with it. Um, but I, I would actually be uh, happy to see some of that land developed in green businesses. Uh, I think we've done stuff with our natural lands. We've done Stogro. I would like to see Stogro get a lot bigger than it is on some of the land that's south of Highway, uh, of North Avenue. I would like all the land south of North Avenue to be in either agriculture or in natural lands. But the land north of North Avenue, I wouldn't mind seeing some new urbanist housing development there. Uh, or uh, some kind of, uh, there, there are clusters of businesses that have synergies between one another. Uh, there's a good one like it in Burlington, Vermont, and there's some that are in some of the Scandinavian countries. And I think that a college that either sold its land or leased it for a purpose like that would be doing something that I think is very, very interesting. So uh, that's where, where I might come out on that. I think well, basically at this point, we've, uh, the, the regents have said, we're not going to do anything now, we're not going to do anything rash. We'll be back to consult you um, if we do decide to do something, and I take them at their word on that, that they will be back to consult us. They may still consult us and not do what we want, but, but that happens. I mean, you do fail in things, and I think failure is okay, and I think actually failure is one of the best lessons that we can teach talented students like you who have had, in some ways, too little of it. Um, I, I was telling my class the other day when I was giving back some exams that were not very good that, um, that one of my best learning experiences was coming out of high school where I was the valedictorian and I had never had any, I never had anything except an A, not even an A minus. And it had been, I don't know, six or eight years since I'd had anything except an A. And I went to college and I figured, how hard can college be anyway? And I like books and I wanted to get, find a place where I could get books cheap. So I took a job at a bookstore near the college for 28 hours a week at a time when I was also taking six classes on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I had six consecutive classes at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 1 o'clock. Just in case you're wondering, this is really stupid. Um, and I, I ended up, this in, in my first semester, not studying very much because I was working at the bookstore a whole lot and not doing very well. In fact, I only got one A, two Bs, three Cs, got thrown out of the honors program. Just an absolute disaster in terms of, you know, of my normal definition of success, but it really loosened me up to see that success can be many things more than that. And so I was an utterly indifferent undergraduate student. I would bet there's not a student in the room now that had a lower GPA than I finished with. Um, but that's okay. I mean, you can, you can make something out of failure every once in a while, although I'm not, in, I'm not encouraging you to get a lower GP <laughs> GPA than, than I did. The, the context is a little bit different now. Other questions?
Yeah, actually, I forgot to mention that. Uh, I, this is probably half of what's going on, the stuff I presented tonight. It's the, it's the more dramatic half. It's the stuff that I know the most about. But uh, one of the things that comes of looking at a quotation like that is to wonder, and, and if you believe that, that the ecological transition is the major revolution of the 21st century, then maybe a college ought to have some requirement for that. Um, you know, we have all kinds of requirements for you guys, and if we really think you're going to be involved in the ecological revolution, maybe one requirement for that would be an interesting thing, some kind of sustainability requirement. Um, and so I, I have a grant from the college this year, uh, oh, it's a, uh, just a one-sixth reduction to s think about that with a group of faculty. So um, me and Becky Judge and John Shade and Dan Hoffrening and Ermila Malvadkar and Sherry Satterstrom meet every Friday morning just to talk. And one of the things we're talking about is what would be the things that we would want if we had a sustainability requirement? What would be the way that we could do it so that it wouldn't just become a checkoff like the other requirements where people would say, oh, crap, I've got to do my sustainability requirement. I forgot to do it, and I've got to get it out of the way. Um, and maybe even to have a sustainability requirement that's not in the curriculum, but to say, in fact, there are more interesting things going on in the operations of the college than there are in the curriculum, and let people like Pete Sandberg or Jim Fisher or somebody like that provide, we couldn't provide a, a curricular credit for that, but we could provide a certification that a student had practiced sustainability in one of these things. Um, and that might be actually better for the ecological revolution of the 21st century than, say, taking environmental history, which is, you know, kind of a dumb course anyway. So yeah, there, there will be some thought about that. Nothing will change very fast on that because I think the, f the sense of the faculty is we have enough requirements already. And uh, I think there are some students who share that idea also. Yeah, right. Yeah, if, if you're waiting for Jim Farrell to teach you something or for Matt Rohn to teach you something, you, you're probably waiting too long. This stuff is not rocket science. Um, it's stuff that you can learn on your own, and it's something that you can practice on your own. Actually, one, one part I left out of this talk tonight is I, just, I, I tried to think about what would be some of the challenges that I could say, okay, this is stuff that you guys have got, need to think about. We've thought about a turbine. We've got one. It does a good job. We could get another turbine, but there are other things that we need to think about. One of the things that I think we need to think about is how you live in the residence halls. Um, most of the stuff that we've done so far is stuff that the college has done, and it's been administrative, and it's been institutional. But we really haven't changed behavior very much. If you were to come to this campus and, you know, go to any other campus on the, on, in the country, we'd look at you guys and we'd say, well, they're pretty much all like, like all the rest of them. It would be really hard to tell that you were green or ecological or sustainable. And so I, th I think it's time for us to think about what would the culture of a college be like that was committed to sustainability and not the culture of the faculty or the culture of the institution or the stuff that David Anderson wants to happen, but the culture that you guys replicate all the time every day. And that's the most, in culture, most important and most powerful culture around here. The faculty have a certain amount of power, but it's mostly just in classrooms. Um, you guys have power over each other, mostly through peer socialization, just the way that people look at you and say, oh, well, it's normal to drive an SUV around from Skoglin to Old Main or something like that. And if every, every time you do that, you're telling people that's normal. So I, I think our everyday action is like that, and we need to think about that. Uh, another thing I think we need to think about is cars. Um, in the first campus ecology class, we actually uh, took, we did MapQuest stuff on all the faculty and staff that are in the handbook. 
uh, at that time we got we were able to get mileages for 763 faculty and staff to see if each faculty and staff member made one round trip uh, to from home to college and back how many total miles would that be and it turns out that it's 19,778 miles every day the faculty and staff of this camp this doesn't count you guys driving it doesn't count the trucks that come to campus it doesn't count anybody who comes to visit on campus it's just the faculty and staff coming from home to campus and going back again and we go about three quarters of the way around the earth every day um, that's not sustainable uh, it's part of america's big driving we drive americans drive six trillion miles a year um, it's just incredible what a car culture we are, and it will be very difficult to change that. Uh, we're, we're a kind of spread out state, uh, but it, it's time to start thinking about cars, I think. Uh, another thing that we're thinking about is, uh, is doing some uh, sort of state-of-the-art buildings that would be small. So we have really nice natural lands now, but we don't have a classroom on the natural lands. And I know Pete Sandberg is thinking about doing a classroom building with one classroom in it that would be entirely off the grid with its own turbine, with its own solar stuff, with composting toilets, uh, with the whole thing down there, pretty much just beneath the turbine. And I would guess that we probably will do that within the next five years, something like that. But we want to we think about that. And then we want to think about if we had one, then could we design just a whole bunch of, of really innovative buildings that would be like a little center for innovative buildings. So that if somebody came to St. Olaf, they could go down there and walk around and say, oh yeah, I could do this with my house or something like that. So. That, that's another thing that I, that I think is on our agenda around here. Um, another thing that needs to be on our agenda, oddly enough, is recycling. Um, we're a really bad recycling campus. Uh, as far as I can tell from the statistics I have, and they're mostly old, we only recycle about 14% of the solid waste that goes out of here, and that's a really small number. Um, so we need to think about doing recycling and, and actually, you know, when you got something that can be recycling, put it in a bin that says recycling instead of taking the easy way out and throwing it in the nearest bin. Um, that would be another thing that I would say would be on the agenda. And there are probably 20 more and probably the staff have already thought about 20 of them that I haven't thought of, but those are some of the things that I think we, we might be doing. Dan. I mean, I, the, the question is, what do I think St. Olaf will be like in the 20 years or something like that? I, I think St. Olaf has basically made the decision that uh, sustainability is our default option. Um, and I think that's pretty remarkable. It's, it hasn't been that long that we've been thinking about it. But um, for example, the, the, the building guidelines that we now have that the college is committed to say basically we're going to do ecological design every time. It may not be at the lead gold level, but every building we build will be like that. Um, and I'm, I, I get really enthused when people who aren't, there's, there's a crowd of us who hang out in environmental studies who are always involved in all kinds of things. And there's a crowd of stu students, and I see many of you out here who are also always involved in that sort of thing. But it really gets me enthused when people who aren't in that group um, embrace it also as something that the college does. So I was delighted to see that Homecoming Weekend had a lot of local food options um, in, involved in it. Um, because the people in the alumni office aren't necessarily ones that I think of as the sort of green people here. It's not that they're not green, it's just that they don't hang out with the environmental studies faculty and I don't see them all the time. Maybe they're more green than I am. But, but when people like that start saying, this is what we need to do, then I, then I think that makes quite a difference. And the other thing is, um, part of us, part of that will be driven by outside forces. We're 
um, we're an example for a lot of colleges now. Uh, the Black and Gold and Green website is one where we have a, a place where you can click there and send a message to St. Olaf, and all of those messages come to me. And I, there was a period about two weeks ago where I got uh, an inquiry every day about how do you do stuff? How do you do that? How do you do this? I was talking to Kristen Johnson, who works at Stogro. She gets them also at Stogro. How did you guys manage to start an organic farm? And she's got to now figure out a way to do a sheet that will explain to them how we started an organic farm and how it works and what are the synergies that make it possible. So I think part of what is going on, one of the things I do is, in fact, really the only thing I do is tell stories about this stuff. Um, you know, Pete does a lot of work, Jim Fisher does a lot of work, the, all kinds of people around here do a lot of work, and I just stand around and tell stories. But the stories are important, I think. And for example, I was out in California over fall break telling stories about what we do here at, at St. Olaf because other people want to know, and they get some hope from what, what happens here. So I think that power of example is a really important one. And the, the, I'd say one other thing, I, I heard Somebody told me the other day that, that some student here at St. Olaf had said that we only do the sustainability stuff for show, that it's really all PR. And that's not, that's not entirely false. Uh, it is, it's great PR. We get students now who come here because we're doing stuff like this and they, wanna, they think, if I'm at St. Olaf and they're doing all this stuff, I'll learn how to be somebody who can be a leader in the ecological transition of the 21st century. So there is a PR element to, to what, we're, what we're doing. But I think one of the interesting things around here is that we don't, we have generally made the decision not to sign on to the easy stuff um, when we think that um, there's something problematic about it. So there's a thing going around now called the President's Climate Change where they're trying to get college presidents to commit to being carbon neutral by a certain time and to do it in a particular way. And David Anderson has looked at it and said, I'm not gonna sign it. And the reason he's not gonna sign it is not because we're not gonna do stuff that's, that's moving towards carbon neutrality, but that we won't be told by somebody else exactly how we, how we wanna do it. And it would be very easy just to sign it and then not actually do it in the way that they say. But, but, and we could get some PR for signing it, but, but he's decided not to do that. And I think that's a good thing to just say, we're gonna do what we do because that's who we are and not necessarily because it's a list that we could be on or, or something like that. How do I know that David Anderson is going to not be like President Bush? <laughs> well, I mean, I, in some ways I don't, obviously, because since you can't predict the future. What, what I do know is that, that David and other presidents here have been remarkably encouraging about the work that we do. Um, what I do know is that the, pers the staff person who has the office closest to the president's office is Pete Sandberg. Um, and, and that Pete is consulted all the time on what should we be doing. And I know that Pete is, is somebody who's committed to this work also. And, and we're, you know, we're, not, um, we're not fanatically committed to it. Uh, one of the things that we've, we've done, say with this building, for example, we've decided at St. Olaf that we're not gonna do state-of-the-art buildings. Um, State-of-the-art buildings are really expensive. They often include cutting-edge technologies that may or may not work, and those are expensive for us. We tried that actually with some lighting stuff that we did about 15 years ago, and we bought cutting-edge technology, and it turned out not to work, and we had to replace all of it, and so it was really kind of dumb. Instead, what we do here, say, with architecture is what we call state-of-the-state, 
we get the we get the very best stuff that's been tested over time. So we're not fanatical about it, but we're pretty determined about it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the question is about could we have a forum where routinely we talk about environmental kinds of things as a larger community? And the answer is probably, the answer is maybe, but it, that's really hard to work logistically. The, the one forum that we do have that sort of does that is the Sustainability Task Force, which is constituted in that way. And it, it depends on the faculty and the staff and the students who are on there really speaking for a whole lot more people that are, that are like them. And it depends on people like me telling you some of the stuff that happens as a result of what goes on in, in the task force. But you know, with the non-core land stuff, the, the, when the Bolt consultants did the, the stuff that went on in, in here and the kind of consultations, and there were lots of opportunities for us to say what we wanted to say. Um, and they actually got pretty well recorded, I thought, in their report. Um, that was a useful kind of thing. The, the regents, I don't think we're ever going to have large meetings of 800 students with the regents. Um, I think the regents like to have a group like the Board of Regents uh, Students Commit Student Committee, and that committee can be really active and really effective. Um, but, but I think it's the case with, with anybody that you can never get everything that you want. You know, I, I want a whole lot of things you know, as chair of the history department, but the budget won't allow for all the things that, that, I, that I want. Or, you know, I'm in environmental studies, but I want to teach these two courses, but for some reason or another, I need to teach another course instead. I think we always are in that situation where we can get a lot of the things that we want, but we can't get all of it. But what, one thing that could happen, though, is that you, you guys could get more demanding. Um, I, I, I think you're awfully easy on professors sometimes. You know, and it and you demanding not not in the sort of really aggressive, nasty sort of sense, but it it would be really nice if you're in a class that could have some environmental content in it, and it doesn't to go to the professor after class sometime and say, you know, this seems to me that this this could be configured to include this kind of topic. Why don't you think about doing that the next time around? Um, those things kinds of things can be really helpful, and most of us, believe it or not, are paying attention to you when we're teaching. Um, I always ask students at the end of the semester to tell me, you know, which books were really good and which ones sucked. And some of the ones that you guys think suck are ones that I really like. But um, and the and the best example of that is a book by Robert Bella called Habits of the Heart, which I think is just a wonderful book and that everybody ought to have to read it. But I I couldn't persuade you guys to like it, and so it's no longer in my syllabus. Um, so I think professors do pay attention to to what students say. It won't be the case that a professor who's never done anything environmental will convert a whole course, but they might think about doing one thing in a course or having a project where there's an environmental kind of option to it. And those small things are the ways that lasting changes really happen, I think. When, just to give you an example of that, one, one thing that we've been doing here at St. Olaf and Carleton for the last two summers is a, uh, a workshop called uh, Cows, Colleges, and Contentment. 
and, or no, house colleges and curriculum. And, uh, and what, we've, what we wanted to do was to say, if we wanted to do sustainability across the curriculum, then faculty who may or may not have any training in environmental stuff ought to have a place where they could talk and about how they might configure their courses. And so we just invited Carleton and St. Olaf faculty to do that, and we wanted to give them some examples of how they could teach with the natural lands or the or, uh, Norway Valley or something like that. And we just put out an invitation. Would people come for a two-day workshop during the summer to do that? And the first summer we had 28 faculty here, and this last summer we went over to Carleton and did it and had maybe another 15 faculty, and we'll probably do it again here next summer. And, you know, if we do 15 at a time, there are probably, I don't know, 500 faculty between the, the two colleges and so in 30 years we'll have it done you know and but and, and the other thing I, I tell people particularly in my environmental history class is I'm a historian so I never think that things are going to happen very fast um, you know in terms of environmental problems it took us about 200 years to get into this mess and it's going to take us pretty close to 200 years to get out of it I would think uh, maybe we'll be quick on the out end we need to be quicker than 200 years but it will take us 100 years to get out of it um, and, you know, James Hansen says we have 10 years to turn everything around or else there's going to be really catastrophic global warming. I, I, he may be right about that, but I don't believe that historical changes of the scope that he's talking about happen that fast. So I think that there will be some catastrophic global climate change uh, in your lifetimes, maybe even in mine. Um, but, it, but it will not be as bad as it could be if people start doing things now on global climate change. And that's, that's where I'm in that difference between hope and optimism. I'm not an optimist. I think global climate change is happening. It's going to happen. It's going to get worse. Um, but I'm hopeful because I think that there are, as, as Havel says, there, there are things to do that are right, and we ought to do them, whether or not we think that 70 years from now there's going to be less carbon dioxide in the air or not. Is there another question behind that meditation, or, or have we just come to the end? I think you're saying very quietly, we've come to the end. <laughs> Thank you.